if one's practice and understanding of emptiness, of shunyata, goes deep enough and wide enough, radical and thorough enough, then we see, amongst other things, we see that any view or sense of self is empty. Any self-concept is empty of inherent existence. It is not an ultimate or basic truth. So, in that fuller and more radical understanding of emptiness, it is not the case, for example, that the personality is somehow illusory, but what's really uh, the, the, the case or what really constitutes the self is just the uh, process in time of the five aggregates of uh, physical materiality, the body, and uh, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, intentions, consciousness, etc. It's not the case either if one goes uh, that deeply into emptiness that um, self is an illusion but um, some kind of oneness is uh, a basic reality, etc. All these views, uh, all views of self uh, are seen to be empty. And where that leaves a practitioner who has seen that, who has understood that, is uh, not rather with a sort of impossibility of using the language of self or using the views of self and a sort of um, nowhere-to-go uh, uh, situation in their life, predicament in their life regarding self and anything else, in fact, because everything is empty. Um, but rather, it because everything is empty and there is no sort of um, hidden, basic, building block reality or fundament that is not empty, where it leaves a person seeing that is it opens up any and all views of self as kind of legitimate um, uh, views and concepts to play with, to entertain, to put on the way a, uh, 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 an actor would um, put on different costumes, etc. Although even that analogy quickly breaks down if you think about it. So there's the legitimizing through deep insight. Um, there's the legitimizing um, to, uh, or, or the legitimization to to see uh, and conceive and perceive um, uh, self in different ways at different times in the whole range of of. Uh, views of self. So yes, sure, I can um, practice at times seeing um, or conceiving of personality being empty, ego being empty, but all there is is this uh, process 
of uh, the aggregates in time, for instance. Yes, fine, legitimate view, very helpful, uh, quite freeing, quite simplifying at times to a certain level. Um, uh, helpful. Uh, or a view of just um, cosmic oneness of one kind or another. Um, and again, the ego or the separate self is an illusion. Yes, beautiful, lovely, liberating to a certain extent. Um, at times, etc., and and many others, um, but it also legitimates, uh, legitimizes um, seeing, sensing uh, oneself as angel, or the self of another as angel, as theophany, uh, as uh, having a duty to uh, one's daemons, d a i m o n s. Um, which can actually use interchangeably with angel um, for now, at least. So the deep emptiness seeing, the radicality, the thoroughness, the, 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 the um, totality of, of that legitimizes, opens up all kinds of possibilities, um, in a way an infinite range of possibilities, rather than closing down all these possibilities. We're free free to uh, uh, conceive and um, perceive and talk uh, and entertain uh, senses, uh, any sense of self. We're free, free to move in that whole range. Um, knowing all the time that whichever, whichever costume one puts on, whichever way of conceiving, sensing, um, uh, viewing the self is, is empty, as empty as any other. And we said already in um, one of the talks, I can't remember already, but one of the talks in this series, that when we talk about um, not just the, em- the middle way of emptiness in, in the Dharma, what Nagarjuna calls the middle way, um, and others has come uh, down the tradition as the, 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 the sort of uh, secondary meaning of middle way, of the Buddha's middle way, um, but when we talk about the imaginal middle way, we're not talking about simply um, a dissolution, a melting of the self, a dissolving, a disappearing, a fading of self or, or, or other objects of, of the imagination. To be an object of the imagination, it must be formed in some way. It must retain some degree of form, this form or that form. And, and again, there's the infinite range there. So... Um, imaginal middle way, it's, it's formed, but it's theatre. And again, as I said in the past, if you um, if you if you've been to good, you know good theatre, it's powerful. You know this is not real. What's happening in front of you, but it affects you, and it can affect a um, transformation in your being, a, a transformation in your life in your heart, in your soul, in your view of things, in your aspirations, in your desires, etc. So, yes, theatre, um, theatre needs forms. Uh, but knowing their theatre doesn't take anything away from the power that these different, let's say, forms of um, self, the different senses of self, uh, can, can uh, um, wield. And we also mentioned already in a talk that there's this kind of dance um, uh, across the range of the imaginal middle way. So the imaginal middle way 
might seem neither real nor not real. It's, it can seem just like the emptiness of like a very a very narrow path. It's a kind of razor's edge um, of precision in terms of reification and non-reification, etc. But actually, there may be. I think I think it's helpful to. Um, to conceive of rather this middle way is is kind of more of a broad boulevard and so we have this possibility to reify uh, less at times or more at times um, across that range that still constitutes basically a sense of theatre with regard to an image or a sensing of soul Um, so we will come back to that uh, hopefully in this talk and I think um, in the last retreat that we did, the guy asked the roots into the ground of soul. I, I, I tried to give an analogy, a uh, metaphor um, for um, the necessity, if you like, for soul uh, of, of the imaginal sense beginning to involve and uh, enliven and uh, dimensionalize, etc., the sense of self. Um, so that oftentimes we talk about Im- image as other, as the, the image feels like it's other, not always. Um, of course, we've touched on that. The image is other, it's an, it's an object. Um, and uh, But it's, it's, it's important in time, might not happen immediately with a certain image. And again, back to questions of pacing, etc. But to look... Um, and, and with some images or some experiences, uh, sensing the soul, etc., it doesn't. It doesn't always need. Um, uh, it doesn't always. It's not always important that the self becomes image. It might be just fine for this other to be image and the Im- the sense of the imaginal uh, doesn't spread to involve the self sometimes. But if one looks over time at one's sort of um, tendencies or patterns with regard to um, to imaginal practice and sense, sensing the soul. Excuse me. Um, and one notices that, for instance, oh, I'm, I'm always, it's the other that's always divine. And I don't uh, tend to um, sense my own divinity because the, the sense of self has not become imaginal. If one senses that, if one recognizes looking back uh, over a stretch of time uh, with many images, and says, oh, that's really quite rare, then one might be recognizing there an imbalance. Um, so I gave uh, this analogy, as I was saying, on the last retreat of a fountain. So you can imagine like a fountain, a stone fountain in one of those uh, squares, um, you know, in, in, in a city or a village, in a piazza or wherever, wherever it is. And um, this, so if you imagine this fountain and uh, the water um, shoots up out of the sort of central nozzle, and we could say, you know, in this analogy, that's kind of psyche's um, creations and discoveries rising up from the central nozzle, this sort of... Um, uh, in infinite and endless outpouring of the uh, inclination to make soul, of the desire to make soul, and the raw material of soul. 
And like, so it, the water comes up out of the central nozzle, and then, uh, as it does with fountains, it falls back down. And that central nozzle is central in 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 a stone tray, or maybe a circular stone tray. Um, and in falling back down, uh, we could, if the water just falls back down on one side of the fountain, and not um, around the whole area, uh, around all all the different sides of that circle, um, then if the stone's not too heavy and the water's uh, if there's a lot of water again, analogies get stretched. But um, then if it just falls on one side, that that basin and the whole fountain is going to tip over. It's going to be uh, made lopsided and eventually kind of lose its um, balance, fall, maybe shatter. Um, uh, if it's lopsided, if the water is falling down equally or relatively equally um, over the different um, uh, areas of the circumference of this um, circular basin, then there's more balance there. So when we we talk, I've put this out there a few times now, but we're stressing its importance. So um, self other and world uh, want uh, soul wants self, other and world to, to become image so where there's let's say an image that's an other it's like an, an erotic object that's maybe I'm sensing it as divine etc um, there's a natural tendency and again it might have its own its own let's say natural pace if we can even use such terms um, to for the the sense of uh, the self also, and then the world in cosmopoesis to also become image. So that the, the initial image might have been an image of another, and working with that, and if we don't get in the way, um, if we allow soul to do what it wants to do, which is to make more soul, then self um, and world, as well as this other, will, will become soul. Uh, so I hope that makes sense. Um, uh, without that, as I said, there will be a tipping over. So there will be, for instance, very little equanimity if um, the, just this other is divine, but I'm not. Especially if that other is a human other whose divinity I am sensing because I am sensing them with soul, and I am not. I am um, uh, remain flat or... Um, Lacking in divinity, etc. So, um, this, when we talk about self, other world um, becoming image, or soul wanting self, other, and world to become image, or then uh, we also have to point out it doesn't have to happen in any order. Um, so, um, I, I could be, I have been sometimes, you know, sitting, for instance, t- teaching a retreat, and and the the yogis, the sangha, become image for me first, and then it might spread to the world and to me, uh, in- include the, the imaginal sense, the self gets subsumed, involved, um, uh, needed in to the imaginal uh, soul making and, and the creativity and discovery of that. So it can happen in any order. It might start with a cosmopoesis. It might start from some 
um, lovely sense of nature opening up, some imaginal sense, some sensing the soul either of one object or or of the totality of one's environment, and then um, move to the self. So any order um, is possible, but over the long term, we want to get a sense that the waters of soul are allowed to flow always, all those three ways, self, other, world. Um, The order is not important. So that's something to check. And uh, what I really want to talk about tonight is is the self-becoming image. So that's a general point in terms of contextualizing it. We could go further with that and actually delineate other aspects of being, of experience, that also will will tend to become ensouled if we let the soul-making uh, dynamic and process do its thing, if we don't get in the way or block it or inhibit it in some way. So we could say also that eros uh, will become uh, dimensionalized, divinized, um, will, our own eros will become an erotic, uh, imaginal object for us. And, and in fact, any aspect of our being that sort of comes into the orbit of our attention uh, will, um, if when the soul making is happening, uh, at a certain point it will become, uh, it, will, it will get drawn in to the soul making dynamic and hence become imaginal. So, self, other world, um, other aspects too, um, but, but it's important that self also becomes imaginal at some point, or uh, sometimes at least, um, and that can happen in any order. Uh, so, in a way, like I said, th- 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 this is, we could say this is just what soul will naturally do, left to its own devices if it isn't blocked. But still, we can investigate that whole uh, movement a little bit more, and at times we can encourage or help it, um, and and that's quite interesting to explore that. So I think I already mentioned, I didn't really fill it out, you know, sometimes what what happens is uh, we're dealing with something that's touching the heart, and maybe touching the heart um, in a difficult way, whatever this issue is, or or a very lovely way. But we see um, that we desire something. Maybe that desire is already eros, maybe it's desire, maybe it's a painful kind of desire, or it's stuck in a, in a painful place. Um, one possibility sometimes, again, be, quite um, uh, uh, deft in the touch here and delicate in the sort of manoeuvring rather than formulaic and sort of uh, yanking things around. But one possibility then is to um, almost like externalize the, the self who loves this or that, the self who uh, has desire for this or that or has eros for this or that. So one's feeling it in oneself, and and even getting to that point, it might be that that was a journey, even to recognize, oh, I have desire for this, or wrapped up in this 
complicated dukkha that is, uh, I feel afflicted by right now or lost in actually is part of the whole constellation of dukkha there is desire um, there will always be desire when there's dukkha and um, uh, that goes back to the teaching of the OCD practice the opening to the current of desire um, but often there's love too I love this or that it's wrapped up with desire of course I love this or that, I have eros for this or that, I have desire for this or that. But externalizing the, 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 the self, so we say, here's all this complex dukkha, I recognize that one strand is it, is of it is my love for this or that, or my desire and eros, or eros for this or that. And externalizing it means let that, um, let uh, the one who loves this or that, the one who desires this or that, let that become image. She, he, they who love this or that. Um, so almost putting it in the third person and letting it constellate as an image which then um, uh, obviously has uh, echoing and mirroring and kind of maybe feels like a bit like myself but is also other. Um, sometimes that's a really skillful move. Again, if it's, if it's definitely deftly and delicately uh, done and handled without too much pressure or clunkiness or um, demand or uh, formulaic sort of going through the motions Um, she, he, they who love this or that she, he, they who love uh, who desire or have eros for this or that and then being with that image it might be that one uh, actually recognizes, oh, one has eros for, there's an erotic um, uh, relationship with that self that we've just externalized. Um, So let it it be other, um, but it becomes imaginal. It might start as just a sort of more flat image, but as one recognizes the eros, as one recognizes the beauty there, it might become image. Um, and sometimes it's easier to have that sense of eros and beauty when it's externalized like that. And for all kinds of reasons and social taboos and cultural conditionings and whatnot and contractions of being um, and, and psychology, uh, it's harder to have that, to recognize the beauty and the dimensionality and to, and to have an erotic relationship with oneself. So one kind of externalizes it by just making it image. Don't worry if it's not imaginal at first. It can very soon become imaginal, more fully imaginal, with the eros there. Um, so um, the, the one who desires and loves opening, the one who desires and loves to be touched, one recognizes that becomes an image, and one sees, as I said, the beauty, the dimensionality, the um, uh, eternality. Th- there's eros there, there's reverence, and one recognizes um, the the echoing, the mirroring. It's me, and it's not me. But that might have come this 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 imaginal sense of she who, the one who desires and loves. Um, opening, one who desires and loves to be touched, or someone else said, the one who is faithful and devoted to beauty, 
all these, um, these are actual examples from interviews, but um, they came out of something where uh, they came out of a condition of being that wasn't, that wasn't at all clear um, to start with. It was just a, a contracted sort of tangle of lots of different um, uh, painful elements, um, <clears throat> history and psychology and situation and self-view, etc., um, but as this image was sort of supported to uh, come to birth and to emerge there, then it reflects back on the self in the infinite echoing and mirroring. One recognizes something, one recognizes something about oneself, and oneself has become image in this sense. Although there's this kind of other, uh, it's other. It doesn't it? Doesn't matter. Some some magic, uh, some alchemy has happened in the sense of self. So it might take a, a little while to get there, um, because one has to uh, kind of deal with the tangle of dukkha sometimes, or uh, it, might, it might not be that tangled, it might not even be dukkha to start with. But then then these uh, steps, if you like, I don't want to make it too formulaic, um, uh, then the beauty is revealed, the eros is revealed, the whole self-sense can open up. Uh, so this is um, important, um, and there's, there's so many possibilities, you know, working with image of the way the self gets um, pulled in uh, to the soul-making dynamic, pulled into the imaginal sense, how the imaginal sense spreads to include the self. So um, someone on retreat at Guy House was <coughs> sharing with me, uh, this is a while ago, um, they were in the uh, garden and a, a blackbird was, uh, flew into, the, in, into a window uh, of, of Guy House and uh, was wounded, fell to the ground and was wounded. And she heard the sound, saw it, found the blackbird in the sort of undergrowth and uh, in the flower bed or something and it was clearly wounded, and um, so she just sat with it, and she stayed with it in its uh, in its wounded condition, in its suffering, and stayed there um, with with compassion, with care, with concern, but also with with you know a troubled heart. And um, there was quite a lot of papancha at first with that situation, despite the compassion, etc. There was. Um, you know, what should I do, and, and uh, um, quite a lot of the, the being was stirred up, partly in a not very helpful way. But then, as she sat with it, or later actually, the whole thing became, um, became image, became imaginal. Like the whole scene, uh, uh, and the blackbird, and the wounding there, became, became imaginal, and in our framework, then say when when something becomes more imaginal, actually a lot of the um, unhelpful complication and proliferation that we call papancha diminishes. So as the imaginal grows, the papancha diminishes. As the papancha grows, the imaginal diminishes. Um, so in in somehow uh, in being with it and being with it later in her um, back in her room, uh, the the papancha declined, um, peace came, and, and a healing sense came, something that was healing in, in the soul. She went back in, in the morning to check on the blackbird, but it was, um, it was dead. 
uh, well, actually, it was gone. So either it was um, presumed presumed dead, or uh, a fox got it, or something. Um, the next day, um, the image returned, and um, she was reporting this in in an interview, and I asked her. Um, in the image, is the bird alone, um, or are are you in the image, uh, sitting with it? And she said, actually, the image was of 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 me sitting, of her sitting with the bird, um, rather than the bird alone. Actually, both would have been fine. It was more I just wanted to get a sense of what the actual image was, what it included, and what the possibilities were. Um, but there was something I think a particular a particular possibility uh, or direction gets included um, if she was in the image. It's not better or worse. It's just it's just a particular um, possibility. A direction gets included when the image is the the, the wounded bird and uh, and the self there. Um, Sometimes, in a kind of simple way, uh, this works. It's almost like um, then implicit in that image. I I didn't actually linger on it. Uh, I, I, I I kind of I think said very little because I wanted to, to let the process work by itself without me leading it or suggesting it too much. I'm suggesting too much a direction or uh, what needed to happen. But one of the sort of uh, basic possibilities of, of working with the image uh, in this way is that um, you know, sometimes we don't see things about ourselves. And sometimes some, some aspect or quality of our being comes uh, more clearly um, uh, to be recognized. Um, but it's not just that. There's more to it than that. So, um, in this case, her natural goodness deep, natural, uh, innocent, almost childlike care for beings. Something that, in my sense, was very uh, natural to her her soul, as part of her soul. Um, so we recognize something, um, recognize our own positive qualities, etc. Um, but there's more to it than that. Because, because the whole thing can then become dimensionalized and divinized, which is different than just um, recognizing, oh, I'm good at this and I have that quality and a sort of um, flatly conceived um, psychology of self-esteem or whatever. That's maybe one level. But then there's the possibility when things become imaginal with the dimensionality, with the theater, with the eternality, with the divinity and theophany, etc., that it can become more of that. Still, that basic level of recognizing certain qualities in, uh, of oneself, really, through an image, um, is important. As I said, sometimes it's easier when it's external, externalized like that. Um, so give a couple more examples. Uh, someone um, a while ago came into an interview and reported two images. And uh, and was actually interested um, how to connect um, the images with the self and with um, the uh, particularities of, of herself, etc. 
So one image was a kind of dramatic image of a queen with a long robe, and uh, the um, robe was trailing blood. So she's leaving this trail of blood in her long robe, from her long robe. Um, I have it written down somewhere, I can't find it. Yeah, anyway. Um, so that was the, the, the main part of the image. Um, who is this queen? What's her story? So I can't remember if I asked that. I think I did, or, or, or she might have wondered, or she might have just offered the background story. And she was concerned in offering this background story. Um, uh, that oh, but I thought images were not supposed to be narrative. Um, we touched on this, I think, in a Q and A in the Roots of the Ground of Soul uh, retreat. Sometimes you get an image, um, which it's not so much a narrative image as as much as it has a kind of backstory. Uh, it has uh, a kind of imaginal background, so one understands, almost actually implicitly, not like watching a series of events, but one understands implicitly um, the story or the narrative, of, in, in this case, of this queen or, or, or whatever the imaginal character is. So in a way, it's part of the image. It's just more in the background and, and intuited implicitly. But it has a narrative structure, and still, the whole retains a sense of eternality, of always already happening, of timelessness, etc. So that uh, that's actually um, uh, not not a problem uh, with images. Not um, I mean, even if they're narrative, sometimes it's not a problem. But that, let's just say that for now. Um, and getting a sense of this queen trailing blood and her her uh, poise and strength. So I can't remember. I think I think again. It's like almost like I, I, I might have had to ask questions to tease out these uh, the character and the quality and maybe a bit of the backstory of this of this queen. Um, and so again, I asked, "Do you notice getting?" Was as she was sharing this image, the image became alive for me. So we were entering into it together, and I felt like I was perceiving the image just as much as she was. Um, it became, in a way, uh, a, a common object between us, uh, which is a very lovely thing to happen, as many of you will know. Um, and I asked, "Do you notice her wisdom?" This queen has a particular kind of wisdom, um, uh, a shrewdness, but without that, the, any of the negative implications of that word shrewd. There's a kind of practical wisdom, a diplomatic wisdom. Um, do you notice her kind of uh, attuned, appropriate, measured responses to her subjects and to the uh, people in her court, etc.? Do you notice her dignity, her nobility? So all this was kind of, uh, to me, sort of pregnant in the image and needed a little bit of teasing out to become more palpable, to become more recognisable and, and uh, uh, to, to be uh, to be recognised, to be witnessed, to be made clear. It, and then it's possible... You know, again, uh, 
as a stage of practice, it's possible then to, to resonate with her qualities. So as C, poise, strength, each one of these, uh, dignity, nobility, uh, wisdom, attunement, um, a- appropriate response, measured response, um, all these individual and connected qualities can be take your time in the meditation and just be with them and witness them and put the energy body and the soul and the heart and the sensibility in, in, in touch with um, just by virtue of opening to them witnessing them and appreciating them um, one opens one's being to those particular qualities and, and the being, the soul, the energy body the emotions start resonating with those qualities and in so doing we, we absorb those qualities we absorb, if you like um, into our life in ways that can actually then become manifest uh, practically manifest really manifest in our real um, uh, physical relationships um, over time. We absorb those qualities. Um, Now, sometimes people practice with images and that's the, um, the, the, the total scope of the intention. Sometimes people even practice Vajrayana practices um, to do that. It's great, you know, and it's a very powerful way of practice. Sometimes people practice metta just by imagining Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara or Jesus or whatever, and their love, and just beholding that, opening the being to that, and through that there's this resonance and this this absorption, and, and, and it begins to empower, ignite and empower those qualities and those capacities in our heart, in our life in our relationship, etc. Um, so that's wonderful. Um, in our paradigm, we're saying, uh, yes, great intention and, and wonderful that happened, but remember the fullness of intention. Um, so the image is not here just to serve me. I am serving the image. And uh, the fullness of intention means the fullness of soul-making here rather than just um, becoming this or that quality, becoming empowered. This or that quality becoming empowered in my life and in my relationships, in my expression, in my speech, in my action, etc., may be part of serving the image, may be part of what the image wants from me, may be part of doing my duty to the daemon, etc. Um, but really helpful in our paradigm to remember that uh, the fuller scope or the fullness of intention, actually the fullness of soul making, and included in that can be. Um, this absorption of qualities, this empowerment um, of different aspects and uh, capabilities of our being. Um, and then we talked too about um, situation back home with some voluntary work that she was doing um, and the relationship with that community and finding her voice there and spe- being able to speak up with strength, etc. And she saw all that was relevant. There was this echoing, mirroring, or part, again, part of the infinite echoing, mirroring was its um, relevance in the echoing and mirroring to these particular situations um, with regard to community and, and how she uh, manifested and spoke up there. A second image that um, uh, was shared was... Um, uh, a naked goddess who lives in a tree, resides in a tree, 
and uh, one particularly salient feature of this uh, goddess was that she she has her legs open, so her legs are spread. And the uh, the yogi shared, you know, it, it's actually not sexual, um, but she's opening my legs too. So there's already a relationship <coughs> of the self as meditator and as uh, uh, the, the, the sense of self in relationship with this image. And this image, this naked goddess living in the tree, is very gently opening my legs. It doesn't seem um, sexual. Um, something very delicate happening. Um, and there was a little concern on, on, uh, from this yogi that I'm, she said, I'm trying not to become ethereal in the image and I'm trying to retain my particular self. Um, so again, her, her initial question with these two images was what, what's the relationship between these sort of somewhat puzzling images um, and the self? She couldn't seem to kind of connect them or ground them. And she said, in this image, I'm trying, I'm really trying not to become ethereal and to retain my particular self. And so you don't have to always do that. Um, even if you become ethereal, it's not a problem. It's, it's not a problem. Um, to become ethereal, we've talked about this, that how does the energy body feel? Um, and, and that range from sort of insubstantiality, ethereality, to dense and substantial and everything in between is one of the ranges of the energy body perception. It, it's all open. And um, uh, to become ethereal is, is not a problem. It's just what's happening with this particular image at that time. It might be very appropriate to this particular image. I think in this case it was. Um, and also to become ethereal, if my if my energy body becomes ethereal, it's not the same as melting in union and losing the two-ness, losing the differentiation between self and image, um, and with that the eros, etc. So, so there will be the reflecting and the echoing uh, in in the life from the two-ness. I, I don't have to become the image. It will it will. Um, even when there's a sense of self and the other, it will still um, there will still be this infinite reflecting and echoing, just because it's it's what it's what the imaginal is and does. It's part of it. And again, there was a sense here of of kind of um, the image being expressed and and then and then shared as if I I could sense it as well. I was living that image um, at, at, at the same time. We were living it together. Um, but I was, you know, careful. I didn't want to uh, always question uh, my, my inclinations and responses and intuitions. So, to more checking it out with her, is this right? Is, it, is that right? Um, and to me, there was a real sense of uh, exquisiteness. Um, so, the this naked goddess had a, had a real um, exquisite sort of refined. Um, very sensitive, very delicate um, kind of quality, and so I asked her um, if that was the case, and she said yes. And um, and again, it's like sometimes, do you do you? Is it not part of your soul this exquisiteness that you see in her, in this goddess? Is it not part of your soul um, and uh, your particular kind of? 
uh, gifts in this life, your, your particular kind of exquisiteness, are being mirrored and echoed in this goddess. Or we could say your life, um, more powerfully I think we could say your life, your being, your personality, the way you are with your body, your sensibility echoes and mirrors the exquisiteness, the particular kinds of exquisiteness of, of this goddess. There's a refraction there. They won't be exactly the same, but there's this this emanation that get, then gets um, interpreted or reflected in, in our particular ways. And um, might then this sense of exquisiteness also be part of what, so to speak, the gods, the demons, the angels um, ask of you. So again, not to identify with it and not to make a rigid, tight ego belief, an ego view around it. This is the delicacy of the middle way. There's a way where that can have all the power, witnessing that exquisiteness, a conceiving of it and sensing, more than conceiving, sensing of it, having the 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 heart and soul sense of of our our being and our persona and our narrative in this life um, being a very particular refraction or emanation of that particular exquisiteness of that image and not to identify with it but to feel the power of that and with that what uh, is this not part of what the gods the demons the image the goddess the angels are asking of you. Um, and uh, so, so the image is, is brought into a very uh, powerful uh, relationship with, with the self. But it's got all the lightness, uh, I mean, partly helped by the ethereality, but, but um, it's got all the lightness of touch, of, of non-identification, or, or not over-identifying, put it that way, and making a rigid ego uh, identity around it. Um, so there's the, the duty wrapped up in it, and the um, sense of self, and the way this image then uh, informs uh, and flows into um, the self. The self is, uh, as is, again, there's different levels of the way we can sense and conceive this. But uh, so there might be with a lot of these images, whether again whether they're images that are sensed as other or the self becomes image. Um, there's this sense of um, a gift, but also duty. Uh, ask. Um, and and that's part of the deal. It's part of the deal of the self, uh, part of the deal of imaginal work as we conceive it, and um, and part of the deal of the self getting uh, embroiled, involved, uh, worked on in in the soul making dynamic in the imaginal process. Uh, so you can already hear. Um, the, the beginnings of, of uh, a different uh, range of views of self and conceptions of self and psychologies about self um, than are maybe more sort of common or, or dominant in, in, in contemporary psychology, etc. Someone asked me, um, 
a while ago, um, I, I feel like, so talking about themselves now, um, I feel like I want to, um, I want to leave an impression, I want to leave, uh, it's like I want to make an imprint or leave an imprint on, um, I think she was saying on me, but she was also on others, um, and, and she was very skeptical about this this desire. So why do I have this? As a person who's done a lot of practice, a lot of kind of, um, let's say, mainstream Dharma practice and Advaita and different things, um, and non-dual, non-dual practice and that kind of thing. And she, so she was very w- wary uh, of this um, this impulse and intention and desire that she noticed within herself, wanting to uh, leave or make an imprint on others, or on a particular other, or a particular others. So why? And she was judging it. And it's easy to assume un- under sort of um, uh, under the rubric of many uh, psychological, spiritual, conceptual frameworks that this is ego. Why do I have to impress people? Um, um, why do I have to try and make this imprint? Why do I have to be important that way, etc.? But um, so we were talking about this, and you can actually ask, who wants this? So her tendency was to be very suspicious of it, and because um, she had, I suppose, practiced so long in in a kind of um, paradigms that um, uh, put aside the self, to, uh, move towards dissolving the self, and just. Uh, dissolving it in some kind of ultimate oneness, etc. Um, there was this suspicion, so it can only be an ego thing. It was really, it was troubling her, really, uh, like like some kind of uh, itch or something that she wanted to get rid of. But but we can ask, and I said we can ask, who who wants this? Who wants to make an imprint? Maybe it's what the soul wants. Maybe it's the way it communicates with other souls, um, if you like, or we could say um, amongst its parts, if we're parts of a world soul, if we're con- conceiving of the soul that way. Uh, the way it communicates amongst its parts is by making impressions on on the other parts. Or one soul communicates with another by making an impression, and that's what the soul wants. So, you know, um, if I think about... John Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, Beethoven, Peter Maxwell Davis, James Hillman, Etty Hillison, uh, um, friends I've, I'm, you know, uh, who I love deeply. Um, uh, these are all, for me, in my life, um, deep, uh, beautiful, precious imprints on and in my soul. They, they are my soul, or they're part of it. You know, my soul is informed, is, is has the impression, has the stamp of these um, deep, uh, deep soul images. Coltrane, Hendrix, this this friend or that friend, etc. And and I treasure that. I treasure that. I want to be impressed upon in that way. I want to be impressed upon. Don't we as souls want to be impressed upon? Um, uh, by soul and by what is soulful. Uh, in in that desire um, uh, to imprint on others, 
I think, is, is actually the nascent sense of an imaginal self. So it's not, it's not necessarily the ego, again, it's the soul. And soul expresses itself in images to, to a great extent. And this, it's not just the ego self that wants to make an imprint, it's the soul self and the image, the imaginal self, or the imaginal selves, um, the, the, the budding sense of that, uh, that wants to make an imprint on others, a deep soul imprint on others. Um, and that imaginal self, again, it's me and not me, it's neither real nor not real. But somehow it's very profoundly me. Somehow it's very profoundly me, maybe more profoundly me than uh, anything else. The self needs to become image, it wants to become image. Soul wants to, uh, uh, to, to make things imaginal, to discover their imaginal dimensions. And it needs to um, uh, imprint. It wants to express itself. It wants to connect with other souls. This is how soul grows. Soul making is being impressed upon. Sense of soulfulness is is to be impressed upon. If we don't allow the imaginal dimensions of self, etc., then that impulse to imprint stays as... um, Ego, and uh, in other words, flatly conceived self, um, and not eros, but craving. And the only uh, recourse then is to try to live that out, trying to impress people from this flat level, trying to make an imprint, an impression on people, but it's all flatly conceived. And that's going to be misery for everyone, probably. Or, the only other recourse, um, if, if we're inhibiting or disallowing or, or dismissing the possibility of, of this whole soul dimension of self, is to dwell in no self, whatever that means, and try and live one's life uh, with this kind of ideal of no self, whether that's I'm just this process of aggregates or I'm just love or whatever it is, I'm just awareness or I'm just cosmic consciousness or whatever. Again, in in the way I would understand, that's that's great. Those those particular views of no self are wonderful to move in and out of. But to try and live a whole life with all the complexities and demands and 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 uh, particularities uh, of of our ways of loving and our creativity and our duties, etc., doesn't really work. So without the um, um, I- I- imaginalizing, the dimensionalizing, the divinizing, the, the uh, uh, theophanizing of, of, of self, um, our, our possibilities are very limited and they don't really work. So in a way this person was bumping into repeatedly the failure of a paradigm of no self to kind of uh, comprehensively address the totality of her being and her needs, spiritual, soulful, etc. We're just so, in, so used to a certain idea of this, this is right, this is spiritual, this is 
um, psychologically healthy or whatever. Uh, and and just something else wants to happen. And partly what allows it to happen is to conceive it in a way uh, that gives it some respect and believes there's a treasure there, believes there's a necessity of soul there. So self, other, world, maybe also one's desire, one's eros. There might be eros to imprint on others, this desire to imprint on others, on the soul of others. My soul desires deeply to uh, make this impression, and there's not, not, not craving, but uh, and not even just desire, but eros there. But so, self, other, world, eros, need to um, become uh, imaginal, need to become er- erotic, imaginal uh, objects for us. Then there is unfathomability, sacredness, beauty in these, in the self, in other, in world, in desire, not only um, beyond self, uh, other, world, or eros, or in their fading. The unfathomability, the divinity, the beauty, it's in them. They are expressions of it, broadening expressions of it. And I think I touched on this very briefly in an earlier talk in this series, but so, of course then, if if we allow this, um, and kind of... Uh, begin to sense it or allow ourselves to sense it and conceive of it as a soul desire. It's not ego, it's soul. Um, then, uh, or it's, it's the, uh, if it's allowed to do its thing, it can be soul as opposed to ego. Uh, if we can conceive of it the right way, it can be soul rather than ego. So, but of course there's dukkha there if, um, if it seems like we're not making an imprint. The angels want to make an imprint. They need to. Um, it's what, one kind of conception is that it's what we're here for. It's what human beings are here for, to express uh, the divinities, the divinity, the angels, and their particular uh, faces, the faces of the gods. We are here to express the faces of the gods. And the angels are want that, and they want that from us. So that the dukkha of um, feeling like I'm not imprinting, there is no there is no uh, uh, connection there in what I'm trying to put out or communicate or you know, of my being. The dukkha might not even be an ego dukkha, primarily. It might be the dukkha of, of that whole sense of this is what the angels want, and this is what I'm here for, and it's not... Um, it's frustrated, it's blocked. There isn't the re- reception there. It, we could say, if we just play with this idea, you know, that the ego's idea, uh, the desire to impress, is a, a kind of contraction, uh, contraction of, or a dim echo of, uh, the soul's desire to impress. So the, the again, the fundam- we could make a whole psychology of this um, uh, kind of premise or maxim. The soul wants soul-making. The soul loves soul-making. 
And that's, that's the urge. That's the, the fundamental movement in life. And everything else can kind of shake down from that. And what happens sometimes, if we play with this conception, is that that soul's desire to impress gets uh, shrunken or flattened or tightened or contracted around. And so it becomes a contraction or as a dim echo of the soul's desire to impress. And it's, it just it manifests as ego and it feels like ego. Something's got shrunk. So that kind of conception is quite a different conception of self and reading or interpretation or hermeneutic of what we're doing in our life, what we're trying to do, or what's, uh, if you like, the angels are trying to do through us. My demons, your demons, are trying to do through you, with you, as you. Some of you will have heard this story from Oscar Wilde, um, if I can, um, where he's, uh, I don't know where he was going, but um, he was traveling between countries, and the customs uh, officer asked him, do you have anything to declare? And he sort of uh, said, only my genius. Um, and it's funny, sometimes I've shared a few quotes of Oscar Wilde before, and sometimes it seems to me he... he, he I don't know if it's the case, but um, but it's almost like you can hear these little witty quips that he has and, and these little retorts that he has to certain situations um, on two levels. So at one level, it's just a funny sort of um, self-aggrandizement kind of thing, um, declaring that he's a genius in the way that we usually understand that word. But that word genius actually originally referred to something like a, a daemon. So it wasn't a person was a genius, a person had a genius. That's a particular genius. So we can talk, it's like their, their if you like, an angel or their spirit or their, their daemon. So do you have anything to declare? Are you bringing anything with you through through into this country, through customs? Am, am I bringing anything with you? Only my genius. So you can see I have nothing here, very few bags or whatever it is, but I'm bringing this invisible daemon that you can't see. Like illegal goods might be hidden. So he's declaring that. So I don't know if that's what he meant, but as I said, a lot of times I get these kind of double-leveled double, double leveled, um, sort of uh, interpretive possibilities, uh, possibilities of interpretation of, of things he says. And and then what's the relationship with that could be very different than the first interpretation of just a kind of ego ego thing or I'm, I'm a genius I'm declaring my genius I'm a I'm a really smart guy or whatever it is um, not ego it could be uh, the, the 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 conception of that daemon of that genius in the original sense uh, it's, it's him not me and so there's a, a relationship of humility with that. But this is, it's really gone out of fashion. If it was ever mainstream in any culture, I don't know, but it's certainly gone out of fashion. I remember um, in a music history class studying about Stravinsky, uh, the famous, uh, brilliant 
20th century composer. Um, he wrote Rite of Spring, as some of you will know. And he was being interviewed by his assistant, Robert Kraft, and they recorded it And um, at one point. And they were talking about the composition of the Rite of Spring back in the early 20th century, and this was much later. And and, and Robert Kraft got him talking, etc. And at some point, Stravinsky said something like, I was the vessel through which the Rite of Spring was born, um, through which that music was born. Um, and then a little while later, Robert Kraft quoted him back, as saying that. And Stravinsky said, I never said that. Robert <laughs> Kraft, you did, it's on the tape recorder. Um, it's a kind of slightly taboo, because we, we because I think, like so many other things, sexuality and all kinds of things, we, we have such a confused... Um, notion uh, of what we're allowed to think and say and how we're allowed to view self um, and what's taboo and what's regarded as ego, etc. So in the flow of the conversation he was expressing um, perhaps a certain just natural uh, perception of that of being in the service to something, in this case the service of the, the angel was a piece of music Etienne Suriot, the French philosopher, sometimes talked about the angel of the work. So this this composition, this magnificent, revolutionary 20th century composition, the Rite of Spring, um, uh, it, it was or had an angel, and that angel wanted something out of Stravinsky. But then he said, I, can't, I never said that. Yes, you did. Um, so we're constrained and confused by the um, the mixed messages we get about self. In so many ways, we live in a very egotistical culture, um, but we also view that badly, and we judge ourselves or others when when it looks like they or we are being egotistical. And there's there's not nowhere else. Uh, there's no other um, conceptual levels. Uh, the conception is so thin and so limited, and and we're just shunting back and forward between a rock and a hard place there. either ego, because we have no other level um, to think of, and so we pursue things out of a sense of ego, and ego aggrandizement, or the judgment and denigration of that in, in, in ourselves and others. There's nothing else, because the, the wider conceptual frameworks in the culture offer nothing else. All the dimensions have gone, all the possibilities have gone, and there's a real impoverishment there. So, uh, Corbin, of course, talked a lot about, I shared before, talked about the angel out ahead. It's almost like a, a counterpart um, of ourselves, uh, a second half of our soul, if you like, and our relationship with that through the imaginal and the importance of that to the sense of who we are and the direction we have in life and our, our duties to that angel, etc., and um, just paraphrasing a passage from uh, one of his books, Temple and Contemplation, um, I think the book's called, and, um, you know, he. so in, in this case he's calling it the person archetype. Um, he said, that, uh, that's not a symbol of something in me, 
rather it is the earthly human person, it's me, who by gravitating towards uh, my, this spiritual person, this angelhood, I represent and typify uh, hypostasis, meaning an, a, a, an existence, a being of the angelic world. You understand? So, usual way of seeing it is, oh, this image is representing some aspect of me. We've talked about this before. It's representing some aspect of me. The image is a representation. Turning it around. No, I represent and typify this, this angel of the angelic world. And he continues, um, uh, the human being is called upon to answer for it on earth. So again, there's this, his way of saying this, uh, this sense of duty. Everything's reversed here. And he's actually talking about ritual in this passage, so it's how the ritual relates to these kinds of ideas. And he says, human gestures, human representations and imaginings are, are so many methods whereby a human being can be led, led to typify and exemplify in themselves a celestial existence. So by celestial existence, he's talk, you know, in our language, there's other dimensions of being. So there's that dimensionality uh, node here. And again, he's talking about ritual, but he says, if a celestial person, if an angel is represented by a particular gesture or word or phase of the ritual, then to observe these is already to exist in the manner of that transcendent person. It's a very different, uh, back to front, upside down uh, view of of um, of self and and reality. And so, as I said, that that uh, brings dimensionality into our being, and not just the dimensionality of, let's say, uh, Freud's unconscious, a sort of um, deep, dark well of uh, shameful secrets and inclinations or, or whatever and this dimensionality that the all kinds of dimensions there and yes divinity sacredness theophany um, self is dimensionalized divinized uh, recognized as sacred or uh, allowed to uh, flower in a sense of sacredness self as theophany or as potential theophany uh, eternality. So this angel out ahead, or this, what he's calling in this case, the celestial person, um, is eternal. Ourselves are not. Human selves don't seem to be. Sometimes when, I'm not an expert on Corbin, uh, his writings are sometimes very dense and, and he was very prolific, but sometimes it sounds like he's uh, talking, when he talks about the angel out ahead, as, as if there's just one angel out ahead, or one genius, or, or whatever. Um, in the soul-making dharma, there's not necessarily just one. So going back to the beginning, we're free, that when there are many images, um, what Hillman calls more polytheistic psyche, Images that sometimes uh, imaginal beings, angels, that sometimes are kind of in conflict with each other, or at least move, pull us, draw us, beckon us uh, in different directions, ask of us um, impossibly divergent things. Um, I mean, it may be that they all refer to some kind of more fundamental, uh, higher dimensional archetype, if, uh, if you like, I don't know, but uh, in some of these paradigms. Um, 
uh, an archetype, if you remember when I talked about that word, I think it was in Path of the Imaginal. In the original meaning, it meant something without a form. It was rather the, the principle of forming, uh, forming like this or forming like that. So that which is not an image but forms images. So it might be, if you think about it that way, that it generates many images. sometimes um, what we encounter in or with the sense of self doesn't feel divine at all it doesn't feel sacred it doesn't feel um, if it feels eternal it's more just a sense of it seems to be going on forever with its afflictive sort of uh, uh, gestalt or constellation so sometimes for example obviously people uh, we struggle especially in our culture with uh, the inner critic, and um, is very, very common. Partly, I think, a, a result of our culture again of the limited ways of understanding the self, uh, also of limited ways of conceiving the self, but also a result of social fragmentation, individualization, individualism, all kinds of things historically. And so I've talked about uh, working with the inner critic in the past, uh, many years ago, I think it gave some talks on it, and uh, gave out a whole set of um, approaches or things one could do in meditation, both um, at the time that the inner critic is um, active, if you like, present, and also when it's not active. Um, And some of those involved working with the imagination, uh, with regard to the inner critic in relationship with the inner critic, but uh, but that wasn't imaginal. So it's working with the imagination is not imaginal in our sense. Um, uh, but it might be that we can actually allow things to become imaginal with respect to the inner critic, um, and some some of that might start with just a more deliberate uh, imagination. So I, I give just a couple of possibilities just to just to um, start out. Exploration, perhaps. Um, so sometimes, maybe, perhaps, the inner critic could be seen as, you know, in a way, it's, it's part of the self. It's part of the psyche, which, among other things, has has taken or become the sole locus of power. So all the when the inner critic is um, badgering us and and kind of taking over and hounding us. Um, all the power, or most of the power, has gone there. So there, there is this this psyche with its complexity, this this self with its complexity, this soul with its complexity, and all the power of that soul seems to be kind of um, gathered in 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 the under the purview and domain of that of that inner critic, and the rest of the being feels um, weak, collapsed, etc., lacking in power. But it's actually my psyche, yeah, my self, my soul is part of that. So, um, a couple of possibilities. Sometimes, or maybe, feeling one's frustration and anger at the inner critic. So we're back to this crucible thing and the emotions and where is the emotion and where is the kind of point of entry that can allow things to start to become dynamic and and galvanize a little bit in terms of... um, certainly liberating process, but maybe even soul-making process. 
um, feeling uh, one's frustration, one's even anger at the end. One can be so fed up with this inner critic. Um, so instead of getting dragged into uh, the uh, listening to the inner critic, actually, what, what else is there? I'm feeling really fed up. I'm really feeling actually really angry at the inner critic. And that, again, the heat of that emotion, I have to sit with it in the energy body, I have to kind of tease it out of the uh, afflictive mix that's happening at the time. Uh, but in, in being with it, in holding it, in being with it in the energy body, and recognizing it, um, and actually letting it heat up, letting that frustration and anger, recognizing there may be a treasure here in the frustration and anger, which I usually would see as a defilement, as a kilesa, as something that's not helpful. Letting it build up in the energy body, in the alchemical vessel, in the crucible, and out of that image, um, an image might arise. Out of the uh, heat of the frustration and anger at the inner critic, an image might arise, and and that may well have power in it, um, because frustration and anger have a lot of potential power wrapped up in them. And so another, let's say, another part of the psyche, so to speak, is empowered and it changes the relationship with the inner critic. Um, another possibility is to uh, go ahead and deliberately imagine. So it might not be imaginal at first, don't, don't worry. Um, it might, it might never stay imaginative, it still can, might still be liberating. Go ahead and deliberately imagine, um, for example, destroying the inner critic violently. So, uh, whatever it is, smashing it to bits, clunking it on the head, you know, whatever. Um, and that um, deliberate imagination, again, it may not be imaginal, and, and it, it, it may be liberating without this ever becoming imaginal, so... Uh, or it may become imaginal, um, then that, um, that actually going ahead and deliberately imagining um, destroying the inner critic violently um, may actually then liberate the feeling of anger. Um, so in the first uh, approach, it was like, can I feel the anger first? Can I feel the frustration first? And let that constellate an image. Um, or it might be that I'm actually playing with the imagination, and that liberates the possibility of feeling that emotion. And in that anger is power. And the third step there would be to actually, can I almost like um, filter out the sense of power in the energy body from, from the feeling of anger. Um, so those are some possibilities. And again, <clears throat> in that last, illustrated then, uh, Putting those two together is again is non-linearity here. Um, it's sort of it's a tangled ball of wool. I pull on this, and it might be that this loosens as well. This other one, this other thread. Um, <clears throat> so there's those possibilities. There's also the possibility, uh, a slightly different possibility. Um, so the inner critic tends to arise in relation with something, or more, tends to arise more, in relation to something uh, we are deeply longing for, or that we actually have eros for. Someone was talking to me about um, the inner critic, um, and I asked her, when does it come up? Is it just there all the time, or is it certain situations? And it was coming up 
actually in relation to, or in the context of um, uh, certain kinds of, certain um, situations of public speaking where she really cared about what she was communicating or teaching or, or whatever it was. And, um, or for a lot of people it comes up in relation to practice um, and wanting to practice well. So this is interesting, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's always the case, sometimes there's a more pervasive, low-grade sense of inner critic, of course, but, but oftentimes it's, it's actually coming up in relation to things that we really care deeply about, or that we really long for, or that we have eros for. So, rather than getting caught up with the inner critic, and um, what it's saying, and what it's doing, etc., Again, it may be possible to, okay, let that let, let it do its thing, but can I kind of contact um, the eros or desire that's there? So, because I want, I'm judging myself for being a bad meditator or whatever, but actually, can I contact the eros and the desire um, to, to, to meditate well and deeply and discover and play in that way? And the inner critic's still doing its thing, but I'm kind of just honing the attention, directing it um, to other elements, other aspects of the tangle of what's going on. Um, with that desire, again, as I touched on earlier, might be wrapped up the dukkha of the frustrated desire. You know, I really want this thing, and I'm just frustrated. It's not, I'm not making any headway, or I'm, I really want to be able to communicate well in a teaching situation or whatever, but I, I, I feel like I'm not doing well enough. So there's the the um, the dukkha of the frustrated desire might be part of what I come into contact with um, when I'm kind of looking for the eros or desire underneath, underpinning or associated with with this inner critic. And that's okay, you know, because frustration also has this heat element and it's very close to the desire, the eros. But again, out of that crucible, out of that, I'm directing the attention to um, some, you know, elements of the being, the eros, the desire, or even the dukkha of the frustrated desire, there's heat there and there's potential dynamism there. And out of that crucible, if I can relate to them and in, in hold them the right way, um, um, an image might arise in relation to the self, or the self might become image. And um, and one might have a, a very different sense of it all, even a different sense of the inner critic, different sense of the self, there's healing there, etc. Um... What was interesting when this person raised this with me was um, she was taking a public speaking course to try and develop her skills as a public speaker. Um, And they were given certain exercises and and things like that. But in this case, I don't think, um, uh, or it may not be that the, the underlying desire, the deep longing, comes up in the context of those public speaking uh, there might still be self-judgment, but but the desire won't be there. But when it came to teaching uh, or, or speaking in public about what she really loved or what felt really important to her, then there will be the desire. The other things were kind of just uh, you know, they were giving exercises or techniques that you can do to kind of improve as a public speaker, all really important. Um, but 
it wasn't just that she wanted to be a good public speaker just for the sake of it. There were things that she wanted to communicate, uh, that she deeply wanted to communicate and communicate well. So you have to look for the desire in the right place if this is the case. And we'll hopefully come back to this, but there's a way, and I know some, probably at this point, maybe most of you know this, there's a way that um, we, as one of the knows, loving and being loved, um, we can feel loved by an image uh, or images in ways that heal so deeply uh, and so sometimes connecting with an image and recognizing, feeling, opening uh, to its love for us. Um, it's so tailored and so uh, tailored to our being and our particularities and so attuned to us um, and empowered by the dimensionality and the divinity and the beauty, etc., that in a way that kind of love, um, the love that images have for us, uh, profound and almost mysterious, um, mysteriously attuned love, um, it can heal the inner critic and that whole painful constellation almost more powerfully, I think, than anything else. So, if we just lay out uh, some possibilities uh, with regard to the self-becoming image, the self-becoming imaginal uh, a soulful sense of self, soul-making sense of self. There is, um, uh, as I said at the beginning uh, this evening, there is the possibility of um, externalizing, so to speak, um, the, the, uh, the self uh, that loves this or desires that or feels this way or whatever, and and letting that become image, letting it become other, and then that becomes imaginal. And that starts to uh, then echo back and change our sense of self and dimensionalize it, etc., and allow it to become more imaginable soul-making. Then there's also the possibility of uh, an, an image that is already other, but we sense it's me and it's not me. It's not me, it's other, but somehow it echoes me. And and we, in Corbin's language, we recognize the angel out ahead. It has something profoundly to do with me and my soul. Somehow it's profoundly me, and it's not me. Uh, and so that becomes, if you like, part of our sense of self, part of our soul sense of self, part of our sense of soul. Um there's uh, another possibility that I haven't really touched on um, where an image can arise and it's sort of apparently impersonal. Uh, it seems like it's not uh, um, to do with self, it's not an image of self, but, um, but actually it's, it's doing something that's allowing the self to gain uh, dimensionality and become image. Um, so, so there's images that are apparently impersonal that don't retain particularities. Uh, so, for example, I've been reading um, in the last few years, at different times, a little bit about um, 
what's called the ten sefirot, so it's a Kabbalistic teaching. There are ten, I don't know what you'd call them, aspects of 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 the Godhead, or aspects of God, or or, or aspects of the way God um, emanates from the sort of uh, unfabricated dark mystery of the innermost being of God um, emanating in these ten qualities. Um, so, uh, love and strength and wisdom and etc. Um, and uh, there's all kinds of literature on this and, and uh, ways it's interpreted etc. Um, and so I was meditating one day with 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 sort of this having read about this um, and uh, and then with the idea that my being contains or expresses these ten sefirot, these ten aspects of God our beings do everyone's being does um, uh, so they themselves are part of and rooted in in the divine um, and are emanations as I said, at different levels of the divine or the Buddha nature, if you prefer that that word. And again, in in Dharma language, Dharmakaya actually means the body of um, qualities of a Buddha. That was one of the original meanings of it, and it came to have other dimensions of meaning. So there's a similarity there between the teaching of Dharmakaya and Sephira. Um but in, then, then was added to in my meditation with this idea that my being contains and expresses uh, those uh, ten those ten aspects of the divine of the Buddha nature. And meditating in that way, the Sphirot, they remain impersonal, but the self is begins to be given a kind of dimensionality and divinity, and it's uh, complexified, etc. Um, in in that way. And because of that, the self begins to become imaginal. Uh, and and then, as said right from the beginning, with the fountain uh, basin analogy, and also then the world uh, in cosmopoesis um, starts to become imaginal from as the self become imag- became imaginal. Uh, or it might be that um, the perception of the world is. Uh, conceived of and sensed as self. Um, that kind of way of looking. But in in that meditation, so you can hear, well, that all sounds quite universal and impersonal in a way. Although the self is involved, it seems to be um, being seen as a just a, a a universal kind of manifestation of God, of, of the Buddha nature, with these ten qualities that everyone has. But there's a way there was a way of doing it where my particularities were retained. Um, they weren't uh, uh, you know, I wasn't dissolving uh, the sense of self or omitting the sense of self, my narrative, my struggles, my joys, all that was included in this uh, in this meditation on on the nature of God and the nature of uh, human psyche, if you like, a human being, um, and the continuity of that in terms of the sefirot, the, the human being as emanation of the sefirot. 
but without dissolving the particularities, without omitting me and my narrative and struggles and all that. So there's the particular, unique way these ten spheres manifest and express through me. So something that can start as an apparently impersonal image, or even sound like it, actually can be, by including the narrative and the particulars and the uniqueness, um, can be uh, rendered more more unique, more uh, retain its particularities, retain its uh, personal uh, personhood and uh, uniqueness to self. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities. I'm just throwing out a few here. But if we <clears throat> linger for a moment with this um, this particular area uh, of images or senses of self uh, that are apparently impersonal... Um, then uh, it's worth mentioning, uh, some of you may know this, um, in uh, some of the Buddhist tantras, the tantric texts, um, the elements, for example, earth, air, fire, water, sometimes space, sometimes consciousness, um, either four or five or six elements, are, um, you could say, personified um, uh, or associated with certain divinities, certain bodhisattvas or buddhas or goddesses. Um, You could say more than that. You could say that the elements are the um, uh, refractions of those um, goddesses, for instance. So in the (coughs) Guya Samaja Tantra, um, uh, for example... The uh, there's four goddesses, uh, Mamaki, who uh, is or is behind or emanates or symbolizes uh, liquidity, um, the water element. Uh, Lochana, uh, who symbolizes, um, who represents, who emanates, who is uh, the uh, element of earth, of solidity. Uh, Pandara, who is or symbolizes or emanates <coughs> or is the goddess of uh, heat, fire, warmth, element. And Tara, <coughs> who uh, manifests <coughs> or emanates or is the goddess of uh, air, the air element. And so... For some tantric practitioners ba- uh, who base themselves, for example, on the Guya Samaja Tantra, practicing that way, that would form part of their mandala and part of their meditation. And there's different ways you can do this. Um, some of it will be very prescribed, and but there's no reason why one can't um, improvise with it a little bit. So sometimes uh, one maybe. S- meditating outside with a sense of the elements in relationship to one's body and there's a sensing with soul of, for example, the four elements and one plays with that, one encourages it or it just opens by itself and one senses them as divine maybe as goddesses, personal divinities in this case or one's following this prescribed image Um, 
So that's that's all lovely, and you know that's a part of uh, we could include that in um, soul making dharma and that kind of thing in, in imaginal practice. There was once. Uh, Maybe it was on the foundations review, I can't remember. I think it was in a Q&A and someone asked me and I responded sort of categorizing the different kinds of image that can arise that aren't, uh, you know, there's the imaginal images and the way that we talk about them for the most part. But then there's other variations where you can kind of get this <clears throat> um, formless space that has retains the essence of the particularity of the character of whatever imaginal figure <clears throat> one was meditating on, but the but the the actual sensible uh, apprehension of that uh, imaginal figure has gone, and it just retains their character. An, an empty space with their character it can be very beautiful, very profound. That's a possibility. There's also a whole possibility of sort of um, what often tends to happen with more prescribed images or archetypes, so Kuan Yin or. Um, or these four goddesses from the Guya Samaja, for instance, um, or Tara, where it's almost like one's uh, working with an imaginal figure, but that imaginal figure is kind of, in a way, semi-universal. And that's fine, that's very... uh, popular form of practice uh, of using the imagination and visualization in especially for uh, vajrayana practitioners um and it can it can stay there like this this goddess tara whoever it is doesn't really become um a fully particularized uh character the way uh, images imaginal images in the sense that we mostly are talking about them that tend to but it's still really valid and can be really fruitful and of course an uh, an image may start that way in a sort of more universal archetypal sense of this image tara or this goddess or whatever it is um, and then become more particularized with practice uh, not that it should or shouldn't um, it's just a slightly different uh, realm that one's in a slightly different direction or again, it could be, for instance, in practicing, let's say, with the um, with the sensing the elements with soul, the four elements: earth, air, fire, water, and and letting them become divinities, goddesses, uh, like that. Uh, again, then, as one meditates, it may be, and one might be able to steer it this way, or it might just happen this way. It's not better or worse um, that they become particularized. Uh, these goddesses, or the, their relationship with this body, this self, uh, and the elements in relation to these more universal archetypes, um, that relationship relates to this particular self. And again, as we said in the, in the uh, example of with the practicing with the ten spherot, the the particulars of this self and this body, and the way the elements have manifested in this body and in this life and in this narrative and do manifest right now and will in the future that that's where the particularity is 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 kind of not just retained but also then um involved and uh what's the word highlighted and amplified even in the practice so they remain kind of somewhat universal the elements and the goddesses behind them in this example but but it starts to become more personal through the relationship. How do those elements, um, how have they uh, been incorporated uh, into my life, this life? <clears throat>
this narrative, this being, this self, this body. Yes. So that's a possibility. There's a couple of possibilities there. Letting it be more universal and archetypal, and uh, and it becoming less so through the particularization, the uniqueness of the self, or through the particularization and unique, gradual particularization, uniqueness of these. Um, uh, divine figures, they become more particular, more like uh, proper characters. So there's all you can see. There's all kinds of tributaries of possibilities here in 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 this. But uh, even if something starts apparently impersonal, I mean, it can stay. It can stay impersonal and still be very soul making, very beautiful, very very fruitful kinds of practice. Or there are ways that it can be apparently impersonal and then uh, gain more. Uh, relevance uh, uh, to to the personal self and, and particularity either in oneself or in the image. Um, so just throwing out some different possibilities here. I mentioned, um, we, you know, we're talking about what can uh, what can support the sense of self becoming imaginal and the sense of then of dimensionalizing the self and sensing the self as having uh, divine roots, as being theophany, etc., as having its origins in other dimensions. And I mentioned um, several times now uh, ways of practicing where one sort of has a kind of um, panoramic view or bird's eye view of the whole of one's life as if from the other side of death, beyond death, after death, so to speak, seeing almost all at once as a tableau, the, the birth, the life, the narrative, and the death. Um, and sort of from the perspective of eternity, and one can just play with that. Uh, may take a little practice, but it's, a, it's just a, using the imagination a certain way. But in gaining that perspective on life, then... It, it can be that the eternality element, uh, the node of eternality, is triggered, is ignited, and that can <clears throat> then allow the sensing of one's life, of one's birth, narrative, and death, uh, from this perspective, from the uh, eternal perspective, you know, and, and the whole thing can be sensed with soul. It starts to flesh out and come alive um, uh, in the soul, one sees it, one senses oneself, one's life, one's journey, all of it with soul. <clears throat> uh, so I've mentioned that a couple of times, but actually there's all kinds of possibility when we get into the domain of time and timelessness and perceptions of time and eternality, etc. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes um, in in your love for someone, a human other, a beloved other, of course, maybe an animal even, or, or a tree or something, where there's love, sometimes it's possible, because of the love and because of the eros, that the perception, of course, becomes soul-making. You, you actually sense them with soul at times, this beloved other. And sometimes it's possible, uh, I find very lovely perception, um, to perceive this other, this beloved other, or oneself even, as the sort of um, uh, contemporaneous totality of the temporal slices of their life. In other words, 
one's one can see plainly there there I'm with them and it's now and they are X years old, uh, whatever that is. But somehow I'm seeing I'm seeing not just that, but I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing them when they were a little girl. I'm seeing them when they were a baby. I'm seeing them when they were a teenager. I'm seeing them. Um, when in 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 the full bloom of adulthood, I'm seeing them when they're an old person. I'm seeing them when they're very old, etc. And all those kind of temporal slices exist at once. All all those ages, and uh, and one loves them all, and one perceives them all at once in the being. The being again in the sensing the soul. There's the through the eros inseminating. Uh, Psyche and Logos inseminating the imaginal object, the the, the beloved other, uh, and and uh, it complexifies, it diversifies, it it presents other faces, um, more and more faces, uh, more and more dimensions, and so that's one very lovely way of <clears throat> perceiving either oneself at times or or uh, uh, someone you love. All kinds of possibilities, though, when we get into the realm of time and uh, the perception of time. <clears throat> another possibility, uh, and last one for now, but another possibility is um, meditating on an aspect or, or, of, of your being. <clears throat> so it could be the body. Um, or or some you know a- anything um, it could be the the voice um, etc. So <clears throat> uh, and meditating on a on it in a way <clears throat> um, sensing it in a way that allows it to become ensouled, allows it to gain dimensions <clears throat> and significance for soul and and the elements to come alive with respect to that. Um, aspect or area or domain of our being, and then maybe from there, then then it spreads to the whole sense of self. So, uh, could give an example of this, but might even try it as a guided meditation if you feel like um, right now, um, just just very briefly to give you a sense of how uh, what, what the kind of possibilities are. So, if you're listening and you want to engage, then you know. Your body into a posture that's comfortable and sort of appropriate for meditation or helpful for meditation, <clears throat> whether it's standing or sitting upright or whatever it is, and um, and just take some moments to actually sense the body, just in the simple way of sensation, etc., um, and the energy body, and expand that awareness of the energy body. But include in your awareness, as we've touched on, um, it's not, this always has to be the case, but for right now, include, uh, let the sense of self, which includes your narrative, narratives, um, let that be there too. It doesn't mean getting lost in it, it doesn't mean going off on a distracted tangent or fretting about this or that. It just means having a sense of body how the body feels, how the energy body feels, its presence right now, its material presence, its energetic presence and feel. But also of yourself. There's a self sitting here. 
so to speak, and that self has a narrative, and that kind of can be included, so to speak, in the in the larger scope or background of the awareness. And just uh, gently, very gently, uh, suffuse uh, your body, yourself, your narrative with metta, with loving kindness, with unconditional well-wishing. Every part and aspect of your body as the Buddha would say, leaving no no spot untouched. It's totally permeating and saturating your body with the healing balm of friendliness, of kindness, of love, and well-wishing. And let that metta include yourself and your narrative or narratives very gentle very light touch here aware of the body aware of the energy of the body aware of the energy of the metta touching the body permeating the body surrounding and suffusing the body then you can let the metta be somewhat there as a sort of implicit background or basis of of this uh, short guided meditation so let that let that kind of go into the background but still be there underpinning everything and aware of the body again aware of certainly the energetic feel the energy body but also aware of the materiality of the body the physicality of it sinews muscles nerves fibers skin your body yes it's not yours but let's say it's yours right now it's you it's not you and it's you I'm just checking that the metta is still there sort of implicitly in the background warmth kindness well wishing if that needs a little a little uh, boosting, just give it a a gentle shot. Seeing if you can dwell with this sense of body, the mystery of embodiment, your embodiment, the mystery of you having this particular appearance, this kind of form, this kind of body, the miracle of that, the gift of that, and yes, all its particular quirks and all its particular uh, ways it doesn't work so well, maybe failing in this way or that. It's still an amazing thing. It's a beautiful body. Totally a miracle. And there's no other body like it. And it's tied in to your being, your soul. And then within within the, the scope of the body and the bodily functions, let's just focus in on uh, the voice. So as far as the um, body, we could 
is concerned, we can kind of identify maybe three or four regions or um, centers of voice production in the body that are involved in, 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 in vocalizing and making sound. So there's the chest. air in the lungs and the whole resonant cavity of the chest. So just to be aware of that as part of the instrument, part of the miracle, part of what allows you to sing forth, sound forth, communicate, reach out, touch other people through your voice. to express your uniqueness, your point of view. Let yourself be aware of your chest in the context of the gift of voice, the mystery of voice. And there's the throat and the, the voice box or the larynx also, obviously, integral to the production of sound, our voicing in the world. A part of the gift. And the mouth, the <coughs> malleable cavity of the mouth and shape itself as a resonant chamber to, in all kinds of ways, all kinds of amazingly precise ways. To really shape sound very precisely, very uniquely. And then there's the tongue and the teeth, which are also included in the instrument part of what allows, shapes and supports forms the voice, the sounding so this miracle, this gift of embodiment and part of that miracle, that gift of embodiment is this particular set of areas, regions, centers of the body that are involved in vocalization, in voice. And as you are with your sense of the body and with the sense of these uh, four areas or regions or centers, of voice production in the body. Beginning to include in the awareness, in your meditative awareness, what comes through the voice? What can come through? What comes through of soul? Through the voice. Through your voice. Through our voices comes through as soul, through these regions, these centers of the body, 
kindness can come through, love can come through. Humor, the mystery of humor. Flashes of intelligence and brilliance come through, are articulated. All these aspects of soul, your soul, coming through, being given life manifestation embodiment through through the voice, through this this physical entity, through this miracle of body. Your perspective, the way you see things, the way you sense things. Fire can come through. Fire in the voice, fire in the perspective, fire in what's articulated. Struggle, story, we can convey our story, our struggles, our difficulties, our pains, our, the sensitivity of our heart, all that manifests from and through these regions of the body, the chest, the throat, the voice box, the mouth, the tongues, the teeth, the tongue and teeth. Poetry can come through, either literal poetry or just poetic speech. One level we can say body is soul, or we don't divide them, we can say body is the instrument of soul, the gift of body in the service of the gift of soul to you and from you into the world and to other souls. You know, in the voice, there's obviously the possibility of carrying verbal communication. We communicate ideas and feelings and requests and all kinds of things, as, as I uh, elucidated. There's also the sound itself, the, the, the music of speech. So, so often when we listen to someone speak or we speak ourselves, we're concentrating on the words and their meaning. But there's also the parallel, intertwined, ongoing music, the sounds, the syllables, the mystery of that. And somehow this too is um, part of the communication of soul. Of course it's there when we sing, etc. But it's there when we speak. This music right now, as I'm speaking. You can listen to the words, the meaning, what's he talking about. Oh, I'm trying to follow these instructions. But there's also a music in, in the sounds of the spoken voice. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's music. 
and it has dimensionality and it has mystery if we can hear it in a certain way it has beauty all this comes through you comes through the gift of body is embodied through body and what happens right now if you just uh, experiment in this meditative state in this um, soul sensitivity as much as you can encourage it gently right now with the full awareness and the sensitivity of the resonances and the ripples in the heart, in the soul, in the energy body, perhaps even in, in image. You just let yourself make certain sounds that are not words. Maybe certain syllables. And listen, listen to the mystery of it. You are part of that mystery. Listen to the music of it. It doesn't mean anything. It's full of meaningfulness. The mystery of this ability to vocalize. It doesn't matter what sound right now, what syllable. pause and for a few minutes just just play with that. Let yourself vocalize meaningless or apparently meaningless sounds and hear it as music. Sense the mystery there. It can be in the vocalization, in the sound, in the rhythm, if you string syllables together. There's music there. What happens now if you say, I? I? This time with the implication of the meaning of I, the self, and the mystery of that I. What happens when you vocalize that I? What happens when you vocalize you? So really as delicately sensitive and open and alive to anything that you notice, anything in the nuance of reverberation, of resonance, of mystery, of beauty.
Maybe that gives you an idea as saying you could take any uh, area or aspect of the being voice we, we did, or it could be body or, or whatever, and and meditate on meditate on it in a way <clears throat> that um, uh, supports or opens the possibility of sensing that domain of your being with soul, and from there it can spread to the whole, uh, you know, the self, and perhaps even in cosmic oasis, etc. So like I said, these are just some some possibilities. The possibilities are infinite, really, for the ways that the self can become imaginal and gain that dimensionality and divinity and all that in our our sense of it. Really, we might turn it around and say, what what actually gets in the way of that happening? What prevents us um, sensing the self with soul? You know, one is... Of course, as usual, the, a logos, an idea, a conception that disallows it. So, for example, the example I gave earlier, um, this wanting to make an imprint or this wanting to make an impression, um, I just assume that it's ego and it's not okay, and I judge it. There's a logos there that's actually um, limiting my sense of things and my understanding of myself and my impulses and the movements of my being. So very often, a certain logos gets in the way. We don't even realize it. Or, as I said, um, I think at the beginning of the talk, <clears throat> you know, not um, not noticing the um, the possibility that's that in working with an imaginal other or an imaginal object, that the self too can become uh, infected, caught up, involved. Um, in, in in the soul-making dynamic, the self-sense can become imaginal. Not, either not noticing it or not allowing it for whatever reasons. Maybe I don't even know the reason. It just feels it's blocked. So that's going to get in the way, obviously. Of course, the opposite can be true, as I touched on. It could be just, it's always myself that's imaginal and I fail to see, uh, to, to, <coughs> to allow the world or, or the or others to become imaginal, to sense them with soul. That's also a possibility, and it would be a problem. What else gets in the way? Over-identification, over-rarefication of the sense of self, any sense of self, even if it's a beautiful one. It feels uh, like, oh, this is this is what we're talking about now. This is imagine if it's too rarefied. Problem. If I'm too identified with it, problem. It will It will squeeze the... Uh, the soul out of it, like squeezing the juice out. <clears throat> or, on the other hand, I just dismiss it. Oh, that's crazy. That's stupid. That's not real. Over-rarefication or, or under-rarefication, in a way. Well, like I've said, uh, I think a couple of times, um, you know, we're, we're dancing <clears throat> on this, on the breadth of this boulevard of the imaginal middle way with respect to rarefication, how much, how little at different times. And sometimes, or with some people at some times, it's, uh, it's important that they view or that they are encouraged to view. <clears throat> Do you realize you're more really that? You're more really or more primarily angel than you are what you appear to be in the conventional sense and the conventional view. Sometimes, of course, 
a person's gone the other way and they've identified too much with that angelic dimension or the imaginal self need a bit less rarefication sometimes but you know our culture um, doesn't really um, support that view of the dimensionality of the human being in our sense of the imaginal uh, self of the angelic uh, refraction so because the culture doesn't we might need to lean on it a bit more to re-legitimize it uh, and reinstate it and open up that possibility. But it's also very individual and it can vary time, you know, at different times in different situations. But there is the possibility of sensing the self with soul, sensing the the self as a temporal emanation of what is timeless. The, the angel. The theophany. We hold it lightly. And in that light holding of it, as I said, uh, it can have enormous power, bear enormous fruit. Something very, very beautiful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.